0: Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. Featuring the expository story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Jesus left Galilee for the last time and began to head south. He headed south towards Jerusalem, which was his ultimate destination. Jerusalem. Think about it. That was the culmination of his ministry here on earth, to arrive at the cross, to die on the cross for your sins and mine, and then to rise again from the dead three days later. That was the culmination of his ministry, but at the same time, it must have been bittersweet. To think that he will not be returning to this area ever again in his current form, right? But someday as Lord and Savior and King of the whole world. And I also wonder if it must have been hard to realize that your goal at the end of your ministry is to hang on a cross to suffer. An immense suffering that we can't even begin to understand. Well, Jesus began his initial steps towards the culmination of his ministry here in Matthew 19. He's leaving the Sea of Galilee region and the ministry he had there, and he's heading south. And as he heads south, he also crosses over the Jordan River into an area called Perea. And here it says in Matthew 19, large crowds continued to follow him everywhere he went. Now, why did so many people follow Jesus? Well, I think it was number one because he was healing, right? He was giving miracle after miracle, healing after healing. But I think the other reason people followed him is because they saw in Jesus something different, something they had never seen before. And I think one of the things that was wonderful to see was that they saw a great rabbi, a great teacher, but someone who is also humble and meek and a servant of all. And in today's story, we're going to see that concept played out in various dialogues Jesus has with various people. And we're also going to get a glimpse into what an average day is for Jesus. Some of the people are harassing him, and then some have honest questions. And then some are just demanding of his time but he reaches out and he serves all as he heads south towards jerusalem but we're going to see over and over again the theme that comes out in today's story that if you want to be great in the kingdom of god you have to learn to be a servant of all well as i said jesus headed south He heads south, crosses the Jordan River into an area called Perea, and there he heals people. And like I said, he's probably healing vast numbers of people. And I can't imagine the hours spent, the exhausting hours of every day spent dealing with people and crowds. Well, there are many there clamoring for his attention, for his healing, because they love Jesus, but then there are also those who are clamoring for his attention and demanding his time because they hate Jesus. They hated everything he stood for. And they were there, the Bible says, to test him, to trip him up. Can you imagine every day dealing with a group of people whose goal was to trip you up with the words you say? to try to catch you in a situation so that you embarrass yourself, so that you look bad in front of others. Can you imagine dealing with that every single day? But that's what Jesus did. Every single day he dealt with people who were trying to test him and trip him up with his words or try to get him in a gotcha moment. And in Matthew 19, we find one of those moments given to him by a group that hated him that we bumped into before, the Pharisees, well, a whole bunch from the Jerusalem Council made up of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, they show up to test them today with a question about divorce. Now, in Jesus' day, divorce was a big question. The question was simply this, can I divorce my wife for any reason? Or another way to put it, what is a lawful divorce according to the Old Testament? Well, there are basically two camps within the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Because that was the debate. What did Moses mean when... It says in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 that if a man marries a woman but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. What did Moses exactly mean by two words in particular? When a man marries and she becomes displeasing, what does the word displeasing mean and what does the word when he finds something indecent about her. What do those two words exactly mean? Well, within the rabbinical tradition, the rabbis, there were basically two schools of thought. There was the school of Hillel, and they said displeasing that word, and, and then indecent could pretty much be anything. If your wife, one rabbi said, literally burnt your food, you know, gave you a bad meal that's indecent enough that you could divorce her on the spot right there. Others went even as far to say if you found another woman more pleasing or someone more attractive and your wife became ugly to you, displeasing in that way, you could divorce her. Well, there were others who followed a rabbi named Shammai and they said, no, no. It has to be for truly indecent reasons. It has to be for sexual immorality. If you find your wife has acted sexually immoral, then you can divorce her. And that's what Moses meant by displeasing or indecent. You can't divorce your wife just because she cooks a meal you don't like. No, they were much stricter, much harder on what Moses meant. Well, these Pharisees came to Jesus to try to trip him up because, you know what? If he picks one of the two camps, he's going to make somebody mad, he's going to make somebody happy. If he picks the view held by the rabbis who follow Hillel, guess what? He's going to make the rabbis who follow Shammai angry. Well, if he picks the school of Shammai, then he's going to make all those who follow Hillel angry. And so he's going to have to pick one or the other, and he's going to embarrass himself. He's going to lose followers. He's going to look bad because, remember, that was their whole goal, right? To make Jesus look bad. Well, Jesus began the answer, as we all should. He begins his answer by going to Scripture. He, in answering, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where Adam sees Eve for the first time, his perfect helpmate, his perfect partner. And it says there in Genesis chapter 2, and Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2 directly, when Jesus says, Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Matthew 19 verses 4 through 6. So that was Jesus' answer. Not that there should be easy divorce or hard divorce. No, there shouldn't be any divorce at all. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That is God's design from the beginning, and that is what Jesus was reminding these men was the point of marriage in the first place, right? To bring two people, a man and a woman, together for life, and when God has joined, let no man separate. Well, the Pharisees shoot back. Well, if that's true, why didn't Moses, who they held in very high esteem, why then did Moses give us an option of writing a certificate of divorce if we're expected to stay with one woman for the rest of our lives? Why did Moses even give us that option? Well, Jesus responds to them once again by saying, "Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery." Matthew nineteen eight through nine. So it looks like Jesus comes down pretty much on the side of the school of Shammai that says, "Nope." You can only get divorced for sexual immorality. But Jesus, I think, pushes it even further and focuses on the argument that it's ultimately the goal of marriage and God's intention to not get divorced, to not give your wife a writ, a certificate of divorce. To keep your marriage together, work on being together, work on reconciliation, work on forgiveness, work on staying one man with one woman for the rest of your life. Do not look for ways to get a divorce, which seems to have been the common approach. Because after he answers this way and the Pharisees leave, his disciples then come up to him and they say to him, the statement which to me is astounding his disciples the ones who are learning to think like jesus and to follow jesus they come up to jesus and they say this amazing statement if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this that you can't leave you're together the rest of your life they say it's better not to marry that just blows my mind. For the disciples of Jesus' day, the thought of staying with one woman for the rest of your life seemed impossible and traumatic. If you had the thought of being faithful to one wife for the rest of your life, it, it just blew their mind. They said it's better not to marry than to try to live up to that. Well, Jesus basically says, guess what? That's what's expected. And if you're not willing to serve your wife, Later on, Paul writing in Ephesians, right, says that a husband should love his wife as much as Jesus loves the church. A husband should serve his wife, serve his family. And all of that thought written by the Apostle Paul is based on this understanding of Jesus that if you're going to be great in his kingdom, you've got to be a servant of all. And that starts right there with marriage. Well, his disciples are more thinking culturally, and they're impacted by the culture, right? Rather than thinking what we would say now, biblically, thinking like Jesus. The culture of their day said, hey, if you're not happy, find a way to get out of the marriage. It's a consumerist approach. I want to buy the best product, and when the product doesn't satisfy me anymore, guess what? I am going to get rid of it, and I'm going to find something else. And Jesus says that is exactly the opposite of what he expects. No, if you're going to be great in his kingdom, you've got to serve. Well, Jesus now dealt with this question again, but through a second dialogue with a young man who we find out later is a rich young ruler. And he approaches Jesus and he asks Jesus, hey, teacher. What good must I do to have eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 16. Now, Jesus can read men's hearts, and he knows this man's heart is all about what he can do, right? He's not really interested in finding out about eternal life. No. What he's after is he's after this question what must I do to have eternal life? What good must I do? He wants his own good works to let him into heaven. He's interested in what good I must do to have eternal life. Well, Jesus, he can look at this man and say he's relying on his own ability, in his own strength in order to gain salvation. Jesus also knows that this man is wealthy, way wealthy than anybody there. And so he's already a little arrogant. And, and in those days, if you had wealth, It was thought that you were blessed by God in an amazing way. So if you have immense wealth, you are thinking you've already grasped eternal life because God has blessed you. And it's all about you, and it's all about how amazing you are, and just how God has blessed you in amazing ways. And so this man already thinks he's blessed by God, thinks he's probably attained eternal life as it is. Well, Jesus takes this idea of self-righteousness, of earning your own salvation, and he turns it on his head. He asks him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Matthew 19, verse 17. And Jesus goes on to say to him, if you want to be good with the Father, then you need to keep his commandments. Well, the man says, what are the commandments that he has to keep? And Jesus says, well, He pretty much sums up the Ten Commandments. He says you've got to keep those. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 19, 18 through 19. Jesus gives this rich young ruler a couple of the commandments to basically sum up. You've got to keep all of the Ten Commandments. He sort of sums up the whole law. But then he says you also have to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? I've kept all these commandments. I've not broken any of them, and I haven't done anything to break them. Again, he's pretty arrogant. He's relying on himself, his ability, his pride. So Jesus, sensing this self-righteous attitude, pushes the agenda further to the very heart of the matter. Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect... Go, sell your belongings, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. See, it was easy for this young man to say, hey, I've been blessed by God. Oh, some of those commandments you mentioned, I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. All my work so far. And look, I have a life that clearly shows I've been blessed by God. I'm earning, essentially. I'm establishing my way to heaven. Well, then Jesus says, go, sell your possessions. Jesus finds the one thing that this man is going to find difficult to give up. Jesus goes to the heart of the issue with this young man. Later on, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to pick up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus says, you've got to abide in him. And how do you abide in Christ? By obeying his words, by keeping his commandments. It's a full life commitment. Are you going to pick up your cross? Are you going to leave everything behind and follow me? That's what Jesus asks of his disciples. And he knows that this young ruler, the one thing he's going to find hard to give up is his money, is his wealth. And so he finds that one thing and says, if you're going to follow me, go sell your belongings, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me and you know what the man does in response it says in verse 22 when the young man heard that he went away grieving because he had many possessions he couldn't do it he wasn't willing to follow god he wasn't willing to give those things up he was willing to do what pleased him to follow jesus But when push came to shove, he couldn't do it. And I think in my own life, what is that area that I've got to put under the Lordship of Christ? What is that area in my life that I've got to learn to leave behind? What is that area that God's saying, I'm going to test you, I'm going to push you, you've got this problem here. Are you willing to give all these things up to follow me? Is there a certain sin that I just love and I'm unwilling to give up? It might be money. Well, God might ask me to follow him and I, I really like my money. I like my house. I like my comfort. What is that one thing that you know I've got to learn to give up? And I've got to learn to die to daily in order to be a disciple of Christ. For this man, it was his wealth. Well, the young man walked away. He couldn't earn his salvation. And When he walked away, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 23. Verse 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, again, the brilliant teacher, takes a popular metaphor of his day to describe something that's difficult. You know, you can't shove a huge camel through the small eye of a needle. You know, at the top of a needle, you have to push the thread through something, right? And that's called the eye of the needle. You can barely get a thread through it. Well, you definitely can't shove a massive camel through the eye of a needle. This is a ridiculous metaphor, but Jesus uses it to help people, his disciples, understand the cares of this world, the riches of this world. It is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're relying on their own money. They're relying on their own ability instead of saying, I've got to completely rely on Jesus. And when they hear this, his disciples again, infected with the culture of their day say to Jesus, then who can be saved? Because remember, back then, and it's probably still true today, if you were wealthy, you were blessed by God. If you had money, you were blessed by God. And for this rich young man to have been rejected by Jesus, they just couldn't understand it. And they thought, if the rich who are blessed by God, if they can't be saved, then who can be saved? Jesus turns to them and looks them in the eye and says, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, and I think that's the exciting thing. And I think that's the important thing to remember here. Sometimes we feel like, hey, there are things I'm unwilling to give up in my life. And it is hard for me to give those things up. Some days I can give up lust. Some days I can give up my money. Some days I can give up reliance on comfort and care. Some days I can give up my love of people greater than Jesus, right? Some days I can give up whatever that love for something else, that affection for something else is. And I choose that sin because I love that thing over obeying Jesus in this area. There are so many things that I think, hey, I'm like the rich young ruler, I'm unwilling to give it up. But that's where my salvation is not dependent on me, right? That's where, thankfully, my salvation is not dependent on my ability to obey and my ability to earn my salvation. No, my salvation ultimately is based on the work of Jesus in my life. And that's why Jesus says, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Yes, rich people can get saved. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. And if you live in the Western world, you're rich. Especially according to Jewish standards back in Jesus' day, we're all super rich. And Jesus just says it's hard for a rich person to get saved. Again, it's easier to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. But he doesn't say they can't. And he ends with that encouraging phrase, right? With man, it is impossible. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself through your own good works. But with God, all things are possible. And I am thankful that my salvation is dependent on my Lord and my Savior and not me. Well, Jesus says if you're going to be a follower of me, you've got to learn to be humble. And one of the best ways to learn to be humble is through the area of marriage and divorce. And one of the best ways to be humble is to realize that your salvation is dependent on Jesus and not yourself. And one of the best ways to be humble is is to say, I am willing to walk with the Lord and I'm willing to put my faith and trust in him and I'm willing to do that and not rely on my own ability, my own strength, my own money, my own righteousness to save me. Jesus said, if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you've got to learn to be humble. And that's shown in marriage and that's shown in salvation. And then Jesus says, hey, if you're going to learn to be humble, Let me tell you a story. And if you come back next week, we'll find out what that story is. And in that story is one of the greatest phrases that comes out of the life of Jesus. And it's one of the greatest phrases that we've got to learn to use in order to live a life of humility and service to all and being part of the kingdom of God. So make sure to come back next week because we're going to talk some more about what it takes to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And it starts with humility and a desire to serve other people. Thank you for listening to Baldhead Bible Podcast.